Chapter fourteen of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume two, by Louis Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Julian Hendry. Seventeen ninety eight. The Mirage. Skirmishes with the Arabs. Mistake of General Desay's division. Wretchedness of a rich sheikh. Combat beneath the general's window. The flotilla on the Nile. Its distress and danger. The battle of Chebres. Defeat of the Mamelukes. Bonaparte's reception of me. Letter to Louis Bonaparte. Success of the French army. Triumphal entrance into Cairo. Civil and military organization of Cairo. Bonaparte's letter to his brother Joseph. Plan of colonization. On the 7th of July, General Bonaparte left Alexandria for Damanhur. In the vast plains of Bohahire, the mirage every moment presented to the eye wide sheets of water, while, as we advanced, we found nothing but barren ground full of deep cracks. Villages which, at a distance, appear to be surrounded with water, are, on a nearer approach, discovered to be situated on heights, mostly artificial, by which they are raised above the inundations of the Nile. This illusion continually recurs, and it is the more treacherous inasmuch as it presents to the eye the perfect representation of water at the time when the want of that article is most felt. This mirage is so considerable in the plain of Pelusium that shortly after sunrise no object is recognisable. The same phenomenon has been observed in other countries. Quintus Curtius says that in the deserts of Sogdiana, a fog arising from the earth obscures the light and the surrounding country seems like a vast sea. The cause of this singular illusion is now fully explained, and from the observations of the learned Monge, it appears that the mirage will be found in almost every country situated between the tropics where the local circumstances are similar. The Arabs harassed the army without intermission. The few wells met with in the desert were either filled up or the water was rendered unfit for use. The intolerable thirst with which the troops were tormented, even on this first march, was but ill allayed by brackish and unwholesome water. The army crossed the desert with the rapidity of lightning, scarcely tasting a drop of water. The sufferings of the troops were frequently expressed by discouraging murmurs. On the first night, a mistake occurred which might have proved fatal. We were advancing in the dark, under feeble escort, almost sleeping on our horses, when suddenly we were assailed by two successive discharges of musketry. We aroused ourselves and reconnoitred, and to our great satisfaction discovered that the only mischief was a slight wound received by one of our guides. Our assailants were the division of General Desay, who, forming the advanced guard of the army, mistook us for a party of the enemy, and fired upon us. It was speedily ascertained that the little advanced guard of the headquarters had not heard the qui vive of Desay's advanced posts. On reaching Demanhor, our headquarters were established at the residence of a sheikh. The house had been new whitened and looked well enough outside, but the interior was inconceivably wretched. Every domestic utensil was broken, and the only seats were a few dirty, tattered mats. Bonaparte knew that the sheikh was rich, 
and having somewhat won his confidence, he asked him, through the medium of the interpreter, why, being in easy circumstances, he thus deprived himself of all comfort. Some years ago, replied the sheikh, I repaired and furnished my house. When this became known at Cairo, a demand was made upon me for money, because it was said my expenses proved me to be rich. I refused to pay the money, and in consequence I was ill-treated and at length forced to pay it. From that time I have allowed myself only the bare necessaries of life, and I shall buy no furniture for my house. The old man was lame in consequence of the treatment he had suffered. Woe to him who in this country is suspected of having a competency. A hundred spies are always ready to denounce him. The appearance of poverty is the only security against the rapine of power and the cupidity of barbarism. A little troop of Arabs on horseback assailed our headquarters. Bonaparte, who was at the window of the sheikh's house, indignant at this insolence, turned to one of his aides-de-camp, who happened to be on duty, and said, Croisier, take a few guides and drive those fellows away. In an instant, Croisier was in the plain with fifteen guides. A little skirmish ensued, and we looked on from the window. In the movement, and in the attack of Croisier and his party, there was a sort of hesitation, which the general-in-chief could not comprehend. "'Forward, I say! George!' he exclaimed from the window, as if he could have been heard. Our horsemen seemed to fall back as the Arabs returned to the attack, and after a little contest, maintained with tolerable spirit, the Arabs retired without loss and without being molested in their retreat. Bonaparte could no longer repress his rage, and when Croisier returned, he experienced such a harsh reception that the poor fellow withdrew deeply mortified and distressed. Bonaparte desired me to follow him and say something to console him, but all was in vain. "'I cannot survive this,' he said. "'I will sacrifice my life,' On the first occasion that offers itself, I will not live dishonoured. The word coward had escaped the general's lips. Poor Croisier died at Saint-Jean-d'Arc. On the 10th of July, our headquarters were established at Rahmahania, where they remained during the 11th and 12th. At this place commences the canal which was cut by Alexander to convey water to his new city, and to facilitate commercial intercourse between Europe and the East. The flotilla, commanded by the brave chief of division, Perret, had just arrived from Rosette. Perret was on board the Zebec Serre. Footnote. Bonaparte had great confidence in him. He had commanded, under the general's orders, the naval forces in the Adriatic in 1797. Burienne. Bonaparte placed on board the Serre and the other vessels of the flotilla those individuals who, not being military, could not be serviceable in engagements, and whose horses served to mount a few of the troops. On the night of the 14th of July, the General-in-Chief directed his march towards the south, along the left bank of the Nile. The flotilla sailed up the river parallel with the left wing of the army, but the force of the wind, which at this season blows regularly from the Mediterranean into the valley of the Nile, carried the flotilla far in advance of the army, 
and frustrated the plan of their mutually defending and supporting each other. The flotilla thus unprotected fell in with seven Turkish gunboats coming from Cairo, and was exposed simultaneously to their fire and to that of the Mamelukes, Fellas, and Arabs, who lined both banks of the river. They had small guns mounted on camels. Perry cast anchor, and an engagement commenced at nine o'clock on the 14th of July, and continued till half-past twelve. At the same time, the general-in-chief met and attacked a corps of about 4,000 Mamelukes. His object, as he afterwards said, was to turn the corps by the left of the village of Chebres, and to drive it upon the Nile. About eleven in the morning, Perret told me that the Turks were doing us more harm than we were doing them, that our ammunition would soon be exhausted, that the army was far inland, and that if it did not make a move to the left, there would be no hope for us. Several vessels had already been boarded and taken by the Turks, who massacred the crews before our eyes, and with barbarous ferocity showed us the heads of the slaughtered men. Perret, at considerable risk, dispatched several persons to inform the general-in-chief of the desperate situation of the flotilla. The cannonade which Bonaparte had heard since the morning, and the explosion of a Turkish gunboat which was blown up by the artillery of the Zebek, led him to fear that our situation was really perilous. He therefore made a movement to the left in the direction of the Nile and Chabres, beat the Mamluks, and forced them to retire on Cairo. At sight of the French troops, the commander of the Turkish flotilla weighed anchor and sailed up the Nile. The two banks of the river were evacuated, and the flotilla escaped the destruction which, a short time before, had appeared inevitable. Some writers have alleged that the Turkish flotilla was destroyed in this engagement. The truth is, the Turks did us considerable injury, while, on their part, they suffered but little. We had twenty men killed and several wounded. Upwards of 1,500 cannon shots were fired during the action. General Berthier, in his narrative of the Egyptian expedition, enumerates the individuals who, though not in the military service, assisted Perret in this unequal and dangerous engagement. He mentions Monge, Berthier, and Riossi, the paymaster, Juno, and Bourrienne secretary to the general-in-chief. It has also been stated that Soucy, the commissary-general, was seriously wounded while bravely defending a gunboat laden with provisions, but this is incorrect. We had no communication with the army until the 23rd of July. On the 22nd, we came in sight of the pyramids and were informed that we were only about 10 leagues from Giza, where they are situated. The cannonade which we heard, and which augmented in proportion as the north wind diminished, announced a serious engagement, and that same day we saw the banks of the Nile strewed with heaps of bodies, which the waves were every moment washing into the sea. This horrible spectacle, the silence of the surrounding villages, which had hitherto been armed against us, and the cessation of the firing from the banks of the river, led us to infer, with tolerable certainty, that a battle fatal to the Mamluks had been fought. The misery we suffered on our passage from Rahmahanie to Giza is indescribable. We lived for eleven days on melons and water. 
besides being momentarily exposed to the musketry of the Arabs and the fellas. We luckily escaped with but a few killed and wounded. The rising of the Nile was only beginning. The shallowness of the river near Cairo obliged us to leave the Zebek and get on board a djem. We reached Giza at three in the afternoon of the 23rd of July. When I saluted the general, whom I had not seen for twelve days, he thus addressed me, quote, So you are here, are you? Do you know that you have, all of you, been the cause of my not following up the battle of Chibres? It was to save you, Monge, Berthelet, and the others on board the flotilla, that I hurried the movement of my left upon the Nile, before my right hand turned Chibres. But for that, not a single Mamluk would have escaped. End quote. I thank you for my own part, replied I, but in conscience, could you have abandoned us, after taking away our horses, and making us go on board the Zebek, whether we would or not? He laughed, and then told me how sorry he was for the wound of Susi, and the death of so many useful men, whose places could not possibly be filled up. He made me write a letter to his brother Louis, informing him that he had gained a complete victory over the Mamluks at Mbabe, opposite Bulak, and that the enemy's loss was two thousand men killed and wounded, forty guns, and a great number of horses. The occupation of Cairo was the immediate consequence of the victory of Mbabe. Bonaparte established his headquarters in the home of Elfi Bey, in the great square of Esbekye, the march of the French army to Cairo was attended by an uninterrupted succession of combats and victories. We had won the battles of Rahmahania, Chibres, and the Pyramids. The Mamluks were defeated, and their chief, Murad Bey, was obliged to fly into Upper Egypt. Bonaparte found no obstacle to oppose his entrance into the capital of Egypt after a campaign of only twenty days. No conqueror, perhaps, ever enjoyed a victory so much as Bonaparte, and yet no one was ever less inclined to abuse his triumphs. We entered Cairo on the 24th of July, and the General-in-Chief immediately directed his attention to the civil and military organisation of the country. Only those who saw him in the vigour of his youth can form an idea of his extraordinary intelligence and activity. Nothing escaped his observation. Egypt had long been the object of his study, and in a few weeks he was as well acquainted with the country as if he had lived in it ten years. He issued orders for observing the strictest discipline, and these orders were punctually obeyed. The mosques, the civil and religious institutions, the harems, the women, the customs of the country, all were scrupulously respected. A few days after they entered Cairo, the French were freely admitted into the shops, and were seen sociably smoking their pipes with the inhabitants, assisting them in their occupations, and playing with their children. The day after his arrival in Cairo, Bonaparte addressed to his brother Joseph the following letter, which was intercepted and printed. Its authenticity has been doubted, but I saw Napoleon write it, and he read it to me before he sent it off. Quote, Cairo, 7th Thermidor, 25th of July, 1798. You will see in the public papers the bulletins of the battles and conquest of Egypt, 
which were sufficiently contested to add another wreath to the laurels of this army. Egypt is richer than any country in the world in coin, rice, vegetables, and cattle. But the people are in a state of utter barbarism. We cannot procure money even to pay the troops. I may be in France in two months. Engage a country house to be ready for me on my arrival, either near Paris or in Burgundy, where I mean to pass the winter. Footnote. Bonaparte's autograph note, after enumerating the troops and warlike stores he wished to be sent, concluded with the following list. First, a company of actors. Second, a company of dancers. Third, some dealers in marionettes, at least three or four. Fourth, a hundred French women. Fifth, the wives of all the men employed in the corps. Sixth, twenty surgeons, thirty apothecaries, and ten physicians. Seventh, some founders. Eighth, some distillers and dealers in liquor. Ninth, fifty gardeners with their families and the seeds of every kind of vegetable. Tenth, each party to bring with them two hundred thousand pints of brandy. Eleventh, thirty thousand ells of blue and scarlet cloth. Twelfth, a supply of soap and oil. Bourrienne. End footnote. Signed, Bonaparte. End quote. This announcement of his departure to his brother is corroborated by a note which he dispatched some days after, enumerating the supplies and individuals which he wished to have sent to Egypt. His note proves, more convincingly than any arguments, that Bonaparte earnestly wished to preserve his conquest, and to make it a French colony. It must be borne in mind that the note here alluded to, as well as the letter above quoted, was written long before the destruction of the fleet. End of chapter 14 End of Memoirs of Napoleon Bonaparte, Volume 2 By Louis-Antoine Fauvelet de Bourrienne